0: This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise.
1: In Traders Magazine, Kirsten Wegner, the CEO of Modern Markets Initiative, observed It has thus far been a difficult year for stock market performance and wild volatility. But investors, especially the new generation of retail investors, can take heart that liquidity in the stock market, the ability to buy and sell stocks, has performed most admirably in 2022 against a backdrop of a chaotic world that included a COVID-19 Omicron surge, rising inflation fears, and the Russian military buildup at Ukraine's border, to name but a few. Stock prices will rise and fall, but the markets operated as intended. No flash crashes, no exchange outages, nothing to compare to the old days as in the 1987 crash when stockbrokers just wouldn't answer their phones in a falling market. The Wall Street technology machine that now supports the markets operated without a hitch, ensuring that orders can be entered electronically and that institutional and retail investors can't be ghosted by some antiquated phone-based market-making model. On today's show, we're going to unpack some of those issues the new generation of retail investors, changes in our market plumbing, and the role of market makers. And we're lucky to have Kirsten Wagner here to talk us through it today on Insecurities.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimov, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf it's good to be with
1: you Chris we'll have to see where this one falls on the fresh wonky spectrum I'm, I'm a little bit of column I'm a, a little fresh of column B, I'm hoping yeah, fresh. yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's uh, a really great episode we've got lined up we're gonna dive back into some market structure issues Chris who knew that was going to be such a recurring theme here? everybody's favorite plumbing right yeah, exactly yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm actually thinking about this episode as kind of filling some gaps or maybe further developing themes from some of our past episodes mm-hmm. we've talked about the gamestop report with ty Galash, we've talked gamification with nebraska law professor james tierney and we spent half an hour or so with robin hood's deputy gc lucas Moskowitz to talk about some of the events of 2021 and possible regulatory changes on the horizon Uh, listeners you can always go back and check out episodes 50 52 or 58 if you want to pick up those conversations there's a couple of themes that run through those episodes yeah First is the rise of retail investors, and this continues to be a big deal in the U.S. capital markets. Uh, Now it is estimated that uh, retail traders account for about a third of all equity trading in the U.S. And financial services firms really are just having to adjust to this new reality, so that's the first theme. The the second, I would say, are some of these market plumbing issues. We keep coming back to Mm -hmm. uh, the role of various players in our capital market structure. uh, The folks that actually make trades happen and make the markets or help the markets function, even in times of high volatility, even in times of uh, fairly extreme market uncertainty. So we wanna explore those themes. As I mentioned, we have Kirsten Wegner from the Modern Markets Initiative here with us on the show. She's gonna share her views and some observations on retail investor psychology, the role of market makers, algorithmic trading, and HFT firms. It's high-frequency trading. And she's gonna help us figure out where the SEC as a regulator fits in all this. So we wanna get into it, but Chris, first, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Kirsten.
2: Kirsten Wegner is the CEO of the Modern Markets Initiative, or we may call it MMI today as as shorthand, which is an education and advocacy organization devoted to the role of technological innovation in today's electronic marketplace. Kirsten's a vocal advocate for the efficiency and cost savings of automated trading, particularly as it relates to retail investors and those saving for retirement or other life milestones through public pension plans, 401k plans, 529 college savings accounts. And able savings plan for individuals with disabilities. Kirsten is a highly sought-after expert and advocate on market structure issues, having appeared before the U.S. House Committee on Financial Services Task Force on Artificial Intelligence and the American Bar Association Derivatives and Futures Law Committee. And she is frequently quoted in the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg News, Politico, and other outlets. Uh, Kirsten, this is also not your first uh, podcast appearance, as we know that you, along with your co-host, Kate Goldman of Elliptic, run the Crypto Study Hall podcast, focusing on the evolving space of crypto, social justice, and the future of finance. Kurt, I know you and I would both recommend our listeners check that out. Yes, absolutely. Kirsten, that's right. Kirsten, welcome to Insecurities.
3: Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. Huge fan of your show. Kurt and Chris, you guys do an awesome job, have an awesome lineup of guests.
2: Uh, thank you. That's uh, I think that's our second huge fan, Kurt. We're really putting them together here. <laughs> I want we usually settle for like big fan. I yeah, want, that's
3: right. I want, the hands. I want the hat with the logo. <laughs> I want to be a walking out for this podcast. Huge awesome. fan.
1: I love it. I love it. Thanks. All right, so let's uh, let's dive into it. We thought it might make sense up top just to let you tell us a little bit more about. The modern markets initiative it's an education and advocacy organization um but why don't you tell us a little bit about the mission and some of the work that you're doing at mmi
3: so modern markets initiative was set up about just almost a decade ago really at the advent of you know electronic trading we saw the you know, if you look back to the 80s and 90s it, the wall street movies there are these guys on the stock exchanges that are buying and selling they were Kind of displaced by automated traders, guys at computers, you get using algorithms to match b- bids and asks, right? So I think if you look back to ten years ago, when like Flash Boys came out all these different books, like this industry was very misunderstood. Modern Markets Initiative was set up to, you know, clear the record. What are automated traders? What is high frequency trading? Um, conduct studies and analysis on how this industry, you know, benefits retail and institutional investors. I came in about five years ago, um, setting up the DC office. You know, registering to lobby, meeting with the House, the Senate, SEC regulators, and so that's been kind of my jam within Modern Markets Initiative. And then, of course, my favorite part is going on podcasts.
1: Naturally, yeah, uh, it, that's really interesting. I mean, uh, how have you found um, perceptions changing, if at all, with respect to? algorithmic trading and high-frequency traders, right? You hear a lot about Flash Boys and the quants before that. So how is that narrative shifting?
3: Well, I think quite a bit. So before Modern Markets Initiative, I was working with a stock exchange in DC. And if you go back to about 2012, I would meet with Hill staff who were concerned. This is before the book came out, that there were algorithms or, or people sneaking into their Bloomberg terminal to try to spy on what their trades would be. And a lot of different Um, conspiracy theories. And I think if you look at any technology, you kind of see it with crypto. Now there is some psychological element of fear of that new technology, even artificial intelligence. There are a lot of questions of what is that technology going to do, right? And and it was the same for algorithmic trading. You saw a lot of questions. And I think industry had a responsibility to come in and answer those questions. So I think over the past decade, we've seen a shift on many fronts. First of all, I think it's hard to define who is an HFT or automated trader anymore. Arguably, most people trading from their iPad are using some of that HFT technology. I wrote a comment letter to European regulators earlier last year trying to define HFT. And it's incredibly hard. Like Most institutional investors, retail investors, are using tools that incorporate some element of algorithmic trading. So it's become more widespread. And then secondly, I think people are understanding the industry more. Um, I think there is a greater um, comfort level to people wanting to trade from their iPad or their phone, you know, where, you know, that was really different 10 years ago. People used to want um, to be able to call their stockbroker or have a human element to it. And with the automation of the markets, we're seeing, you know, a new generation of investors who are used to low cost free trading. And so I think there's been a big paradigm shift over the past decade.
2: Yeah, one of my favorite kind of comparisons along that spectrum is to to show, and I do some speaking, uh, you know, in, in law school classes or, or to burgeoning accountants or finance folks, and I show them that scene from Trading Places with the frozen concentrated orange juice uh, sales and, and and how that goes, and then you just put up, uh, you know, the background of CNBC, and you've got your four or five anchors talking in front of an empty trading floor, right? Where before they would have to muscle in to, God forbid, get some space on the floor to to produce from. Uh, so just kind of seeing that difference, and obviously, is one uh, illustration of how things have definitely changed for for the markets over those years.
3: Yeah, I think that's totally right. And then I think you know now we're looking at this kind of space of you know total free trading. You saw what you've already had a couple great episodes on GameStop and Robinhood, right? But like people are used to having free trading; they're used to continuous liquidity, and I think. You saw a lot of outrage when the Robinhood platform shut down for even a day on a stock, that people want to be able to get in or out of their positions and to make sure the markets are running smoothly. So just that that notion of liquidity provision and how automated trading firms kind of function behind the scenes of the stock exchange is an important part of what MMI tells, right? And people want to be able to get in or out of their positions, and that is kind of what a liquidity provider allows people to do
2: yeah and on that note, Kirsten, let's talk a little bit about those people. Uh, you know, one of the shifts that has gotten a lot of news coverage as well as that you've spoken to at length in other venues has been this new crop of retail investors uh, that are are here. Uh, and many of them you know represent uh, uh, folks of different socioeconomic and demographic backgrounds that aren't you haven't been in the markets historically. We're seeing a lot more women and, and younger investors entering the market at, at very high rates. Uh, related to these tools and, and some of those opportunities as well. But what are your thoughts on what's driving this new investor group into the markets? Is it, you know, opportunity? Is it psychological? Is it just kind of the new way of the world? You know, what do you think?
3: So I think first of all, going back to 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic, there's quite a bit of polling data that, you know, just going through the pandemic and being at home and seeing people's feel like their lives were at stake, it actually changed nearly 80% of Americans' views about what is financially important. So I think it triggered this big shift in thinking. And then you have you know, data that two-thirds of Americans wanted to save more. And I think that was, at that point, it was the beginning of the pandemic. We didn't know what was going to happen next. We didn't know if we were going to lose our jobs. This is before remote work became the baseline. So I think that was kind of maybe some coping mechanism, right? But then it became also a number of factors right you didn't have live sports happening right was stock trading satisfying some of that like gamification of like if you couldn't do your fantasy sports league cuz there wasn't a league in play were people diverting that energy there right you just don't know and then and then dissecting what happened at this like huge i think it was a huge shift in 2020 right like finra did a great study of of like all of the new accounts that were opened for under two thousand dollars or less like a huge percentage of those were people 18 to 29 so you have this young generation of investors that with more women more minorities joining the trading community and the number one reason for most of these investors to create those new trading accounts was two things one was recommendation of a friend there was a huge social element my friend told me to do this so i'm going to do it too a lot of that may have been on social media. And the number two was ability to invest with a small amount for free, right? So you have this confluence of factors of the social network online, people being at home, you know, this energy to want to to kind of entertain yourself too, as well as invest, and then shifting kind of deeper thoughts on money and saving that all created this perfect storm, that a typical baseline of, No, typically like 10% of the trading volume was retail investors. Some days in 2020, it went up to 30%.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good reflection of kind of how the shift has happened. Not everyone is like some of my friends who I know listen to the podcast who found themselves staying up late at night to bet on South Korean baseball uh, when the pandemic first started. So there's definitely different ways to utilize your funds and, and have those opportunities. And I think, Kirsten, you're speaking to that perfect storm. Uh, you know, you had used the phrase in, in discussion ahead of this podcast as a new moment of trading. You know, all of these factors are coming together, the tools, the psychology, the opportunity, the, the focus here. Uh, do you think that this trend is, for new market entrants is here to stay? Or like the pandemic, hopefully, are we just seeing kind of a blip in, in the way things are operating and we'll move on and, and back to more traditional focuses in the future?
3: So I think this is absolutely here to say. I think it's a new generational shift. I think that these individuals who are investing in the markets are creating those new skills in trading. Maybe they're experimenting with short-term trading now. But what I find very interesting is that you see retail investors staying in the markets. They're continuing to buy into the dip. Um, Plenty of data points over the past few weeks. And I call it it's not even like a trifecta, it's a cluster effect of volatility right now. You have what's happening in the Ukraine, you've got rising interest rates, gas prices, Omicron variants, all of this uncertainty and despite all that uncertainty, you know, a couple of weeks ago people were saying are P- are retail investors going to panic sell? You know what? They're actually buying into the dip. And so I think you're seeing especially that younger generation that can be more risk tolerant. They have a longer time horizon to save. they are comfortable with that volatility it's what they've known over the past two years and but it is a total cluster effect of volatility in fact i think earlier volatility was twice what it was at the start of the year if that gives you a sense of the level of volatility
2: and for our discerning listeners that's cluster effecta that's a different different <laughs> phrase than you may be used to hearing when when markets are volatile I That think, is uh, my or i don't know if your phrase, clients cluster use those ones, that language yeah. I've 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 heard it
1: for sure. It's been a wild ride in 2022. I mean, it was pretty wild in parts of 2021. But you know, you're you're right. We do still see people kind of piling in. Uh, I don't know how much of that is people trying to guess where the bottom might be. Um, but you know, something we haven't talked about is, I mean, is there a little bit of FOMO? Is there fear of missing out here for retail investors? That's that's driving them maybe to place that first trade
3: that is definitely one of the top 5 factors psychologically that Finra identified in 2020 a fear of missing out you know i think and you see that kind of displayed in the crypto markets as well where um you know there is like a cycle that happens when you see other people buying in that people are copying and afraid of of missing out um and and we've seen that you know i'd say it's like retail investor sentiment driving certain meme stocks like I would have never guessed five years ago that there would be meme stocks, right? That on social media alone, without any analysis of fundamentals, that that fear of missing out um, and that social momentum behind a stock would drive a price. But I'm not gonna say that's right or wrong. That is just the way it is right now.
1: Yeah, and you get some pretty incredible stories. Obviously, the, uh, the broader media set has been very captivated by these stories over the last year or 18 months following some of these meme stocks, telling the stories about investors who managed to, to buy in relatively cheap, and whether they are holding on for dear life or they sold at what they thought was the top, have have made a lot of money um, through this, this new trading or some of these new applications or, or just following this wave. Of course, we've also heard some stories about, uh, about some folks who really have not done well in the markets. Um, but, you know, I feel like these stories kind of cluster at extremes. And so I'm wondering, what are your impressions of, of sort of the average investor's experience during this time?
3: Well, so I completely agree with you that the you know media attention tends to flock to the extremes, right? And it's like a bell-shaped curve. You hear the stories of people paying off their student loans overnight with um, a smart meme stock investment, or you hear about a tragic options trader suicide, which is just awful, right? But in the middle there are the untold stories of the average you know, longer-term investors who are just staying in the markets or investing mm-hmm. in the S&P, and that has an annualized 6% growth over time. That's been an annualized 6% growth since World War II, right? And what concerns me are you know, is the absence of stories on just that middle path investing, because there are data points I've read about. In an inflationary environment, that are concerning for women. That sixty percent of women with money to invest are keeping their money in cash rather than investing. That there is perhaps a competence of some women to be able to invest, but a lack of confidence. So it's that um, that is concerning to me. It, is where are people in the middle who don't want to take extreme risks or on by, be on mm-hmm. either extreme? Like, and what does one need to do to encourage that kind of middle path of of long term investing? Because gamification. You know, investing is not a game. Um, it's something that I think few investors do, but it's a more salacious story than the long-term investing right. path. Right.
1: So, I mean, get, get up on your soapbox here. Tell us, you know, what, what can folks do? Or maybe a better question is, are there things they can do to help navigate the markets during some of this uncertainty or volatility?
3: Absolutely. I and mean, I think I've read People don't like to hear this, but (laughs) there have been many studies that the best investor is a dead investor, which sounds so morbid, but it's just simply the notion, and I think I posted that on Twitter, if you just simply go in the markets and do nothing, data shows you're better off than someone who's continuously kind of churning through different investment plans. So my first advice would be to play debt, go in and take a position in a diversified um, like an ETF or something. And I call ETFs also kind of the lazy river investing because it's like an inner tube you blow up <laughs> and just go around that hotel in the rapids, drink your pina colada and let the inner tube do its work. It's Amen. it's lazy and it's great. You don't have to, if you don't want to do the fundamental investing research, just go on that inner tube and take that joy ride on the ETF and do nothing because it'll do the work for you. And, and ag- again, if it's just like an S&P ETF, on average, 6% up a year just doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And that is a heck of a lot better than letting your money kind of atrophy with you know inflation rates that are kind of the same amount, but in the opposite direction. So, and then just you know, the idea of playing dead sounds pretty passive. I know it does. It doesn't sound like groundbreaking advice, but it's just this notion that um, if it's better to stay in the markets than to not invest, right? And that you don't actually have to do that much to keep your money in the markets other than just keep it in and do not panic sell. So those are my kind of counterintuitive tidbits that I would be sharing with those seeking to take the middle of the bell-shaped curve.
2: Good advice. Yeah, I think it's a a great kind of financial literacy, right, is a topic that's grown a lot over the past 15 or 20 years. And that's really one of the the hammered hoed points about uh, compounding interest uh, and ownership over time. So great to hear that kind of dead investor focus on that, which will now be a a phrase that enters my lexicon uh, probably a little bit too often.
3: <laughs> I know I should be giving out yeah I was going to say tombstones but that sounds really dark so we're we're in a dark geopolitical period because of the cluster effecta I mentioned so yeah. we should be thinking about rainbows and unicorns and not the, la- the lazy rivers but yes, I the think lazy a
0: yeah, lot the better.
3: lazy river is my visualization just because it's the idea of like palm trees and a tropical you know inner tube and mm-hmm. just doing nothing and seeing your money grow I mean who isn't <laughs> that has to be appealing to to people. So,
2: apart from strategies for individual investors or retail investors, you know, Kurt talked a little bit about the through line uh, theme that we've had about market plumbing issues. And some of them are presented in the media or through other avenues as potentially adverse to the individual investor. Things like gamification, where you're being enticed to make securities transactions, purchases, and sales based on, you know, little
3: confetti and balloons, like digital confetti yeah. and balloons. I don't think that. A digital balloon is going to entice someone to invest. But I do love the fact that, you know, never before had I been to SEC meetings where you have psychologists talking to, um, you know, the investment staff. And it, you know, it is important to look at user interface questions, right? Like if we're going to look at whether Facebook is addictive for young people, like let's open the door to that conversation and do a full review of the user interfaces on investment apps. But for me personally, some digital balloon or confetti is probably not going to lure me to do a trade. But then again, if I'm a dead investor, I'm not looking at the confetti or balloons. I'm staying in it already for the long haul.
2: I, I appreciate that. Digital engagement practices, were the acronym that I was looking for, Kurt, as we do our alphabet soup here. you know, As someone who who grew up as a video game player, Kirsten, I appreciate your sentiment, but also I've found myself at 1130, 12 o'clock at night, not realizing I have followed some gamification aspect into, into playing much longer than I wanted to. Uh, and other types of issues that, that come up are, are kind of what we like to call PFAA or payment for order flow, right? Where investors' uh, activity may be benefiting others without their knowledge or or against their wishes in terms of how they're trading. So you spoke a little bit right now about where the SEC should fall and maybe regulating digital balloons or not. But in, in a more serious note, you know, where do you see uh, other regulators or the SEC itself in thinking about those investors and, and how they should structure or respond to these types of burgeoning issues in the marketplace.
3: So I think the SEC has been conducting a several month-long review, maybe even a year now, on, on PFOF, right? It's an important question as far as you know, PFOF is banned in Europe. It's not allowed there. It is here. Um, and you know, my sense is that overall retail investors have never had it better. That even taking PFOF into account, there's price improvement that's counterbalanced by the PFOF. However, like, Absolutely. Anyone who is charging PFOF, that should be disclosed to retail investors so they can make the choice over what trade is best. And if it's a hidden price and that hasn't been disclosed, then that's a problem. So I think the SEC will be looking at disclosure and transparency. I do not personally get the sense that Gensler is going to ban PFOF. I think after a thorough review, they'll see that the price improvement um, and PFOF kind of balance each other out. It used to be If you were trading stocks in like the late 80s or 90s, if you were trading $100 of stocks, it used to be $6 of commission trade, right? Mm -hmm. And that has gone down now to less than a penny for $100. So I think if like PFOF is a fraction of a penny, I'd rather take that over the $6 from decades ago. That's not to say there aren't areas of market structure that can be tweaked. But overall, you know, bid-ask spreads have come down from- you know, like 50 basis points a couple decades ago to less than a basis point. Mm -hmm. As a result, Mm -hmm. investors have like 30% more in their bank accounts, in their investment accounts. So I think you have to look at the broader markets that they're functioning pretty well. But yeah, like if PFOF is not disclosed, then that is a problem Mm -hmm. because everyone should know, you know, what, what prices are they being charged? Like what are the fees? There should not be hidden fees in a trade. Like no one wants a hidden fee in your phone bill. Or your stock trade bill, (laughs) I get infuriated if I find out about a hidden fee. So yeah, I get it. Like go, that should be disclosed. And the SEC, I think, Uh, is making moves towards that.
2: And I think that's one of those kind of um, learned lessons, right? If if you're getting something for free, or you're working with a company and they're not charging you, you are probably the product, right? That they're selling to someone else. So as long as that's disclosed, or at least uh, you know generally acknowledged, I think you can be in a good place.
3: But I think you're right with respect to video gaming to like 1130. Like I have a tiny like crypto account with, you know, I I ascribe to the rule of I don't have more than 5% of my assets Mm -hmm. in crypto, just a little bit. And, um, you know, I do get updates on like the price of Ethereum or Bitcoin, like every couple seconds. And I think it's up to you to decide, do you want to turn that on or off? Because I haven't turned it off and it doesn't entice me, but I'm like, you know, I get super focused on what I'm doing, but I could see... Mm -hmm. That when you see it go up or down, especially with crypto, it's so volatile, it's going up like 5% or down 5% each day, that that would be yeah. an interesting point, right? And like maybe if something goes down by 20%, you're thinking this is an interesting buying opportunity and that could happen. Your Crypto has dropped by like 40% in a day before. So mm-hmm. just getting all those notifications, it's harder to be a dead investor, yeah. which is what we should be that <laughs> when you're um, – you know, getting a ton of notifications. So there should be also opportunities to adjust settings, I think, for the user interface. Excellent.
1: Okay. So we've been talking a little bit, or we talked a little bit earlier about MMI's role working with or advocating for market makers, or we might call them liquidity providers. Let's talk a little bit about their role, liquidity providers' role in the markets. And particularly if you think that that role is shifting? That, that's ultimately the question we want to answer. But first, just for any of our listeners who may not understand exactly what a market maker is, let's take a step back and just explain the function uh, or the service that they provide for investors.
3: Well, you've probably seen the function if you've watched the movie Wall Street, right? You imagine the old version of what they did where the guys in the floor plate, like selling, like buy, sell, right? And what they're doing is they're like a matchmaker between the bid and the ask, the person who wants to buy and sell the stock. right? So it's similar to if you're selling, buying or selling a house, you have a real estate agent. I mean, this is like a broad generalization. But you know, there is an intermediary to really glue together the buyer and the seller. And that is that was the floor-based specialist. And back in the 80s, there was like Vander Mullen and Associates. There were a bunch of them that each had an exclusive portfolio of stocks that they alone would be the glue between the buyers and the sellers on. Fast forward to now, that specialist system was displaced with the electronification of the markets. Nasdaq became the first all-electronic marketplace, right? And and there were some scandals of the floor-based specialists then of um, them like trading ahead of their investors. We, they had little bits of paper, and it was not in real time. It could take minutes longer to execute a trade, and so um, you know, much more efficient was the automated version that evolved really in the early 2000s with the first electronic trading firms who set up laptops and algorithms. Those specialists were no longer on the floor, like in the movies. It's a less glamorous photo shoot because they're not screaming and throwing out their pieces of paper. Instead, they're behind, there's still people there, but they're behind computers. And if you go into a modern day office, you're going to see guys with like three different computer screens, Their headsets on and they're using algorithms to match the bids and the asks. So they're performing the same function as those guys on the stock exchange did, gluing together the trades, but they're doing it using algorithms. And the markets, of course, have become much more complex since the 80s. We have more stock exchange. There's more fragmentation, ordering through more uh, markets to try to find the best price for best execution, right? So the market makers are those guys that are gluing together. The liquidity of the bids and the asks. And that's fundamentally you know, what our members are doing. We have GTS, Tower, Hudson River Trading, and Quant Lab. They are all liquidity providers. MMI has conducted a study that was out last June. We're doing a new one for this year on market automation and what that means to retail investors. So as a result, that hidden glue that holds the markets together of the, the market makers, as a result of that electronification the cost of trading has come down by 50% in a decade, and investors actually have 30% more in their trading accounts. So every little incremental cost saving adds up over time when you compound it with interest and annual returns that what seems like a tiny saving of just a couple basis points adds up to a lot of money. In fact, Vanguard conducted a study that with automated trading and market automation, an investor has thirty thousand dollars more in their account if they start with a hundred thousand. So it is sizable and I'm, mm-hmm. you know, happy to share the results of that study if you go to modernmarkets.org.
2: Yeah, and we'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, the most recent study coming out uh, you know, prior than when when the new results are released this year. Kirsten, you know, you've you've had a lot of great speaking uh, gigs. Uh, you know, obviously the Insecurities podcast will rank very high on that list, but maybe, <laughs> maybe a couple notches below where you were in December of twenty nineteen when you participated in providing testimony in front of Congress. We mentioned this in your bio, uh, the Artificial Intelligence and Financial Services hearing, which you can actually still find on C SPAN's website. Uh, Kirsten, talk to us a bit about what you presented, the nature of those hearings and that testimony, and, and where automated trading is kind of the the linchpin for which all those things come together.
3: I loved that hearing because it was called "Robots on Wall Street," so That's I got right. to do a little robot dance at the beginning. Um, just kidding, you know. But it was <laughs> it was really great because it was <laughs> one of those great issues where I got to put on my futurist hat. Like what. We've looked at this huge evolution of trading over the past several decades of market automation. Where do we go from there? What trends do we see? And what impact does that have from the committee's standpoint on diversity and future of workforce and kind of social justice of algorithms? Because that is kind of the vantage point of a lot of um, the audience of the House Financial Services Committee. So it was really um, exciting to get to testify at that hearing. Number one question when you look at robots on Wall Street is, and this question has not changed since the 1950s on AI. You can go back and look at a news story from the 1950s, and there is this headline that robots are going to replace humans and everyone is going to be unemployed, right? And so the number one point I had to make for trading was AI is not going to replace humans on Wall Street. AI is a tool for humans, not a replacement, right? And that AI will be used to streamline compliance to make the cost of compliance and trading even cheaper. So that number one it's not a job remover it's just a job changer, right? And then if you look at the future of workforce, you know, the industry of Wall Street overall and trading is very male dominated. I was encouraging you know, more women and minorities to major in coding or physics or math or some of those fundamental majors that will create transferable skill sets to work in AI in the future, because those jobs of the future in AI are yet to be determined. But I can guarantee the majors to work on Wall Street are not necessarily going to be MBAs. It's going to be coding, physics, mathematics. And that's something that I highlight not just before Congress, but I, I do a lot of speaking before kind of inner city youth and middle school students to create a broader pipeline into those fields, right? And then I think a third issue coming up at the meeting was just, again, diversity at that hearing. Like, how do you encourage more diversity in the future of workforce? And again, I think that's about pipelines of education and industry coming together to encourage, you know, internships and getting a broader group of kids involved in those fields.
1: So, it, I mean, it's certainly interesting, and there are a lot of themes in there that I think are important, both for this conversation, but also as we're thinking about how the markets continue to evolve. But, you know, a question I have, when, you, when you're when you appearing before Congress, you're potentially thinking about some kind of new regulation, right? Or, or maybe um, Congress would direct the SEC to come up with a new rule, something like that. Can the SEC even keep up in this environment? I know you've written about this before in, in The Hill a couple of years ago. You had an op-ed that was called. In the great tech race, Wall Street firms are lapping the regulators, which is a great title, by the way. Um, but you were sort of making the point that the SEC and others just don't have the tools. They don't have the resources to keep up as you know, new technologies evolve and become more ubiquitous. So uh, what are, what's a regulator to do? Can, can they play in this space?
3: Well I think the consolidated audit trail is a great step for the SEC. to have tools for surveillance. I think the Midas system of the SEC is fantastic as well. I think the SEC needs to tech up and staff up and I think the president's most recent budget request for the SEC reflects that. There's a I think a 7% increase in in funding for the SEC if I remember correctly. So we're seeing more resources going to the SEC, which I think are sorely missed probably for the CFTC as well. Um I think You know, a question remains, like the SEC's funding right now is entirely derived from trading activity. But when you look at the SEC jurisdiction, it is expanding to crypto. It already has credit rating agencies, all sorts of industries that don't fund the SEC through Section 31 fees. So I think, you know, at some point there will be a bigger question that has to happen and a conversation about how are you funding the SEC? Who pays into it? And should ordinary investors who are investing in the markets be funding the regulation of crypto as well. And I think, you know, if I were a good samaritan in the crypto industry, I would want to have a well-funded regulator. It would behoove me because at the end of the day to have legitimacy as an industry, they need like a good regulator to ferret out the bad actors. And it only helps with their mission and their business model if they also fund their regulator to, you know, make sure there's a strong cop on the beat. So I think at some point there will be a shift in the funding model. It's just a matter of when, and um, you know that will take a lot of work. Like, how do you refund the SEC? And by the way, the SEC is a huge revenue generator. They ha- they um, I think assess fines and penalties that are multiple times their budget, and that all goes to the U.S. Treasury. It can't go to fund them because that's seen as kind of um, you know a conflict. The mm-hmm. CFTC also I think they assess more than multiple times their funding model but they're the only financial regulator that's not self-funded so you know if you look at the amount of resources they're going to need also to regulate crypto like i think there's a very ripe conversation to happen on it's not just user fees right but how do you fund the cftc that they have the resources they need and same with the sec especially as you're looking at new industries like crypto so it's a really exciting time to I think be looking at that overall framework
2: I like that take and that, Kurt, I think goes back to our most our previous episode where we spoke with Carla Caravo and Michael Liftik about kind of the crypto regulatory landscape as it relates specifically to the most recent Biden administration executive order, but also generally. And Kirsten, I love your take that a well-funded and well-meaning regulator provides legitimacy to the area. That's not what I get from the Twitter bros out there tweeting about crypto, but I think it's a <laughs> good point for how this this industry, this product set or, or just kind of this different um, opportunity for folks to invest in might gain a little bit more mainstream traction down the road.
3: I also think if you look at like automated trading, I call it automated trading instead of HFT, but you know, we mm-hmm. benefit from having a strong regulator. It only, you mm-hmm. can only win from having a strong regulator to detect bad actors because they give everyone a bad name. Like we don't, our members, if they find a spoofer, they bust them and turn them into finRA and we're working you know with AI systems with regulators to try to detect bad actors. You don't want those bad actors out there because it gives everyone it tarnishes tarnishes everyone's reputation it's bad for consumers it's bad for the markets, and no one wins so having well resourced regulators can only be good. I think from the crypto standpoint though it's not yeah, just I've- about surveillance though right their concern is you know, in regulation by enforcement, right, and having more resources to have predictable rules, and that's a separate question from kind of detecting the bad actors.
1: I, I think regulation by enforcement is not a, a fear that's unique to the crypto space. <laughs> it's a it's a pretty <laughs> frequent right. topic of conversation here on the podcast. Um, but uh, you know, I'm interested in this in this concept that you like to say automated trading and not high frequency trading or, or HFT. Um, you know, while we've got you, are there a couple particular uh, myths maybe that you would like to dispel about HFT? I mean, it's it continues to be something we hear a lot about in the press and, and other places. So, you know, if you've got your MMI hat on, what are some things that our listeners should know or understand about HFT firms?
3: Well, I think that the first thing to understand is that HFT firms are, you know, they're the liquidity providers who are narrowing the bid ask spread. So they're actually saving investors' money. And that's how I explain it if I'm talking to pension fund advisory board members, right? They're saving, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars a year as a result of market automation collectively. Like, that is huge, right? So the myth that it's somehow costing investors' money is actually the opposite of the truth. Um and then I think you know there are myths about front running. When you know in most of my decks, I'm like, well, we oppose front running; that is illegal. So I think there are all sorts of of myths about how electronic trading works. And I think you know this is why we support having a strong regulator and strong cop on the beat. Because if there is any bad actor giving broader industry a bad name, it only helps our self interest in having them detected and shut down. So Mm. I think those are the key myths, right? The nefarious. And I think, like, if you go back to 2012, there were myths of, like, algorithms sneaking into your Bloomberg terminal to detect. Yeah, that's actually just not, (laughs) that's not how uh, market making works. But, you know, I think it's like any other industry. If you have a (laughs) new technology, there is a human element of fear, right? And I think I actually loved reading Flash Boys, but the moment of – I think there was a scene where – and I call it a scene because I treat it more as – well, it is fiction, right? But as – where if you do a huge order, a giant order, that is going to move the markets and change the price, right? And that a sophisticated trader would trade in like small increments because if you dump a ton of stock and click, it's going to change the price, price, right? So Mm -hmm. that seems obvious to me conceptually, Mm but – You know, I think it's great that people took an interest in the industry and The Hummingbird came out also that movie on HFT. So Mm -hmm. it is fun to be in an industry that is depicted in pop culture because this is such a wonky, um, it's such a wonky industry um, that, that I think there's great, it's great there's public conversation about it. And it's really fun to set the record straight.
2: Kirsten, thank you so much for joining us today. We always love to give our guests a chance to give some parting thoughts here. We've covered everything from HFTs to retail investors to digital balloons to regulatory uh, enforcement uh, and and where the crypto space is going. If you could, what what final thoughts would you leave with our listeners today?
3: My final thought is that in this time of huge volatility, the cluster effect, as I mentioned with the the war, the geopolitics, oil prices, inflation, Omicron variants, that as an investor, you can have confidence that the markets are working, that the plumbing of the markets have never been better. As far as trade execution, the markets are running well, whether they're going up or down, the liquidity provision is there. So you can get in or out of your position, Um, that the markets are functioning very well and that you should have confidence in staying in the markets. So I think if you stand for the long haul regardless of whether the markets go up or down, you're going to have a better outcome than if you like panic sell or are afraid that the markets aren't working and that that it's really been great to see during even the covid lockdown that the markets functioned, price discovery was happening and that, you know, we have the best markets ever for investors right now, you know. So that is my final thought. And it's just really exciting to be on this podcast and get to share some of these views.
2: Awesome, Kirsten. Well, thank you. For those looking for more from the Modern Markets Initiative, please check out their website, modernmarketsinitiative.org, as well as tune into the Crypto Study Hall podcast, uh, which Kirsten is a co-host of, along with Kate Goldman. Uh, Check them out. We love a good listen there. And, And Kirsten, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Kirsten Wagner of the Modern Markets Initiative. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Ekimoff CPA, And I'm at Enforce Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as host Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.